0: Hey, I, I do I I love to teach, not so much preach. I'm a much better teacher than I am a preacher. But uh, I, on the uh, on the flip side of that, um, I do this with fear and trembling. I uh, I have to take God's words and they are the words of God, okay. And I have to take them and give you something to help you and edify you, and that is. <laughs> You ought to thank God for your pastor that does that every week. <clears throat> but uh just uh you know if we can go to prayer before we start um, and then we'll we'll uh we'll start the preaching here. Father, I come to you in Jesus name, just thank you for the opportunity and the ability to do this, Lord. I just pray that you would please uh. Help me today, Lord, you said that if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so, Lord, I have the oracles right here and on the pulpit, Lord, your word. And if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability God giveth. And Lord, I don't have anything that you didn't give me, Lord. So I just pray that you'd help me to submit myself to you today to to uh, give these people what uh, you've put in my mind and my heart and let Lord, the point would be clear and Lord, that we'd, uh, these people be challenged and uh, strengthened and edified to go forth and serve you better this week and the following days until you come back, Lord. Lord, I just need your help and ask for it and pray you'd bless these people as well in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so the purpose, of, uh, the purpose of, of preaching, I always say, if you come in here the same and come up, walk out of here the same as you came in, um, it's kind of pointless for you to come here. <laughs> um, preaching should provoke a response. Um, you know, you could either agree with what's being said and decide to alter or change your behaviors or your thinking, your actions. You can disagree with what's said and have a refusal to change, or you can just come and be disinterested and apathetic, but that's still a decision. That's a response that's made. But, um, What we're going to talk about tonight is going to be, we're going to get to a point and I want you to have a response. So there should be a response from me and from you to this, what we're going to bring forth tonight. That's exactly what the message is intending to do is to bring forth a response. Now, um, I mentioned in one of my Sunday school classes about rightly dividing the, uh, the, the scriptures when we talked about studying the Bible, how there's three, one of the ways to divide the Bible is to divide it in its application, how we apply it. Um, you can divide the Bible in application three different ways. The Bible can be applied historically. In other words, the events that we read historically happened that, that was actually, actual fact historically. And we can look at the Bible in that regard. And when we look at a passage or a verse, we can look at it historically. We can then look at it, which is the most important, doctrinally, because all Scripture is given for, by inspiration of God and is profitable for Doctrine. And doctrine is the truth that is taught from that passage, the fundamental foundational truth that God is bringing forth in that passage. Um, and then we can uh, look at something practically. We take that historical and the, do- the doctrinal and take that and what, how does this work for us? What is, how does this apply to us? What does this do for me? And we're going to bring forth the message here tonight. I, you know, I'm a little unorthodox in the way I do things. Um... So this might seem a little different, but we're going to take this message as three parts. And don't get worried. I think we got plenty of time to get through it, okay? But we're going to take the first part. We're going to, we're going to look at some historical accounts in the Bible and, and, uh, and examine some facts about those historical accounts, which is going to draw us to, number two, a doctrinal truth that we're going to examine. And then at the end of this whole, the actual message is going to be this practical application, what? can you and I do with this truth that we're going to look at? So, um, my way of introduction, I'd like to ask this question. Some of you, as soon as I ask this question, might know exactly what the answer to this is. Some of you might think, yeah, maybe I think I know what this is. And some of you might think, I didn't come here to think about this. Just tell me, because that's why I came here. Just, just tell me what, I want, what you want me to hear. So, uh, here's, here's the question. Who? Or what killed Jesus Christ? Now, just really quick, because this is the introduction. I'm just gonna—you don't have to turn to these passages, but um, just listen carefully. Um, someone might say it was—it was the Jews that killed Jesus Christ. We look in Matthew 26:47, and it says, "While he yet spake, lo, Judas, which was." Uh, a Jew, uh, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. So, those the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people coming to take Jesus. We see in Matthew twenty-seven um, in a couple of verses there. It says, "When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people, this is the Jewish people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. When Pilate saw they could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made." He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it, to the Jews. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. So the Jews said that. Uh, Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> it says, but Pilate answered them and saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. So Pilate knows what's up here. He knows the chief priests, the leaders of the people, have been envious of Jesus Christ, and so they brought him to him to, to kill him. And, and it says, he says this. The, the Bible says this in Mark 15:11. But the chief priests moved the people, and those are the Jewish people, that he should release Barabbas unto them. So they they would rather have Barabbas released unto him, who was uh, a murderer and uh, was in prison for sedition, and they asked that Jesus Christ instead be crucified. This is the Jewish people. Uh, Luke 23, a couple of verses here. It says, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No one nor yet it, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. So Pilate's ready to let him go. But they, the people, the Jewish people, cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third day, a third time, excuse me. Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them, the Jews and the chief priests, prevailed, and Jesus Christ was crucified. So uh, we think, well, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. He, he, they were the Jews that apprehended him, as the Jews that desired him to be crucified. And even when Pilate wanted to let him go, they made sure that Jesus Christ was crucified. So was it the Jews that killed Jesus? Well, some would say yes. Um, some might say, well, no, 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 it was, it was, it was, the Romans that killed Jesus Christ because really it was Pilate that had the authority to do that. We see Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, but he says this to them, see ye to it. So he gives them the authority to go ahead and take Jesus. So Pilate being a Roman, the Roman governor of the, of, uh, the place at the time, he, uh, we say, well, he was, he, was at, he was at fault. It was him that you know, allowed Jesus to die. Mark 15, again, says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So that's Pilate, the Roman governor, scourging Jesus, delivering him. And it says this, And the soldiers, those were Romans as well, led him away to the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band of soldiers. And when they, the soldiers, had crucified him, they parted his garments and casting lots upon him, whatever man should take, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Um, so the Roman soldiers, they were the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross, so right, it was the Romans, right, that killed Jesus. John 19, 34, we know now this was actually after Christ's death, but it says one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. So it was, it was Pilate that could have overruled the Jewish people, but he let them take Jesus and gave command to crucify him. It was the soldiers that actually scourged him and drove the nails into his hand, Hands and feet. But um, someone might say, someone might be thinking here, is like, well, you know, that's not the case. You know, really, it was not the Jews, it was not the Romans, it was us, right? Because it was our sin, right? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 3 4 says this this is the gospel. If you want to know where the gospel of Jesus Christ is, here it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And we know that Jesus Christ died for our sins because according to Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death. So Christ bore our sins according to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So it was our sins, right? Our sins killed Jesus Christ. Um, you know, Romans 5, you know, the, you know the verses, I'm sure. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, that's us. Christ died for the ungodly. So it was, it was us, right? But God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So someone might say, well, it was the Jews because the Jews delivered Jesus Christ to be crucified. They say, no, it was, it was the Romans because the Romans gave the authority and actually did the deed of nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. And uh, you know, those we might say might try to be spiritual say, "Well, it was us; it was our sin um, that killed Jesus Christ." The problem with all these is that they imply that Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, was forced, or overpowered, or somehow backed into a corner, physically or situationally, to the point where he was then crucified and then he died, as if he had no there's no way out, there's no alternative. It was just somehow situations, people, circumstances put Jesus into this corner. And that thinking aligns with the kind of philosophy, the notion that Christ died as a martyr. Christ died as a victim. People talk about Christ like he's a good example. He was such a good example that he laid down his life and he was the leader of this cause. And I want to tell you tonight, nothing could be further from the truth of any of this. Who was really responsible for the death of Christ? Turn to John chapter 10. Now, that was the historical part of it. John chapter 10. And let's start in verse 14. I'm going to tell you something, Pastor Shot set up, he teed up this message tonight, and just, I don't want to whiff it, okay? <laughs> this, when, I, when he started preaching, it was like, God confirmed in my mind this is the message we're preaching. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and I'm known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father." And I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore, doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The Jews didn't take Jesus Christ's life. And the Romans didn't take Jesus Christ's life. And even my sin and yours didn't take the life of Christ. Jesus said, No man taketh my life, I lay it down of myself. I have the power to do that, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it back up again. And he says, This commandment have I received my father. The father has given into my hand to say, Go ahead, son, you can lay down your life when you want to, and you can take it back up when you want to. Now, if this is true, which it is, if this is true, he laid down his life, obviously willingly, it was of his own volition. Now, we talk a lot, you know, we talk about the fact that Jesus Christ could have escaped all this when he talked, you know, he said, knowest thou not that I could call on my father and him give me 12 legions of angels. And so we talk about him escaping it in that way. But think about this, because he had the power to lay down his life at any time he wanted to, he could have ended his life and just been done with it at any time before that crown of thorns got pushed down onto his brow and was beat down with that reed that they put on his, that, that, with the reed they put in his hand and they beat down the crown of thorns that was on his brow. He could have said, yep, nope, I'm done with this. Just end his life there. He could have been, chose to end his life before his back was plowed like a plow furrows in a, in a field, like the Bible says in Psalm chapter 129, when his back was scourged by the soldiers, torn open, beat beyond all recognition, he could have said, "That's enough." I'm laying, This is this is where I'm going to end it. I'm going to lay down my life. I have power to lay it down, and I'm done. He could have laid down his life when they uh, stripped him naked, bare before everybody, um, to his shame. He could have ended his life the moment they started driving those nails into his hands and into his feet. He could have said, "This is too much. I'm done." He could have. Ended his life before his visage was marred more than any man, the Bible says. By the time he got to that cross, through the beating, uh, through the whipping, through the plucking his beard, the blood, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, his visage marred more than any man's. He could have said, okay, that's enough, I'm done. And he could have ended his own life because he had power to do it. He could have ended his own life before the sins of every man and every woman of all time was laid upon him who knew no sin. He suffered, not personally, but he suffered the guilt of all that sin laid upon him, and he could have been, you know what, that's it, I'm done. But it was not until he knew that the payment for sin was finished, and he said it, it is finished. It is not until he knew that and it was done that he finally willingly laid down his life and gave up his life. Do you realize he kept himself alive through that whole thing to finish the redemption that you and I needed to be saved? He was in complete control of when his life would pass. I wish I could give you... I don't usually, uh, you know... Uh, Promote other people, you know, pastors and stuff, when I'm preaching. But there is a message by Pastor James Knox where he talks about the crucifixion of Christ and how in control Christ was at every point of that being taken until he was crucified. If you if you get a chance, go up and look it up on YouTube. It's the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, by, by Brother James Knox. He goes into that thing, you, and you look at what the Bible says, Christ was never, he was never this emaciated, wimpy, he was a carpenter, okay? For 30 years he was a carpenter. He, he was, he was a, a strong, powerful man, but he was on that cross, not wimpy and emaciated and hand-hanging. Do you realize that it says he, had, he cried with a loud voice? You don't do that when you're weak. You do that when you're in control. He had to bow his head to give up the ghost. That means his head was up. Whose head is up when you're being crucified? Jesus was in control at every moment from when he was being crucified until he died because he finished the work that God gave him to do. It was him that he did it willingly. Now look at this. I'd like to turn to Romans 5 for a couple verses really quick and and then we'll get into the meat of this message. Romans 5. How was this done? In what manner was this done that Christ laid down his life? We say it all the time. You know, God, Chris laid, it down, laid down his life for us. Yeah, he did. But do you realize that all he went through before he willingly gave up the ghost and laid down his life? He didn't have to die at all, or he could have died before all that pain and suffering and anguish. Number one, he, this. in what manner was this done? Look at verse um, uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, look at verses six through eight, it says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. It says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. So a righteous man scarcely deserves to have someone die for them. What does the Bible say? But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What, what, what kind of manner did Christ do this in? It was unmerited and it was undeserved. He waited through all that anguish and pain so that sin could be paid for for someone who didn't deserve it. Someone he knew didn't deserve it. Someone he knew didn't merit that kind of uh, sacrifice. It was unmerited and undeserved. In in line with this, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Along the same kind of thinking. Hebrews chapter 2 We read this in Sunday school this morning. Verse nine. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower. Hebrews two nine. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. It was not only unmerited and undeserved, but that, that actually tells us that it was a gracious act by God. Grace is something that God gives to us that is not deserved. God's grace was, was, was shown in the manner that Christ laid down his life. It was undeserved and unmerited. And look at First John chapter three, verse 16. First John 3:16. There's a lot of good 3.16 verses in the Bible. This is one of them. 1 John 3.16. It was done for an undeserving and unmeriting people like us, sinners, without strength, ungodly. It was done by the grace of God, a gift that God gave that we didn't deserve. And 1 John 3.16 says this, Hereby, or this is the way we perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. It was done, it was love. We just heard this, this morning's message was the love at the cross. And it was the love of God that kept Jesus Christ there on the cross, holding his life until sin was paid for and the work was finished. And I think about this, it's a marvelous act of a willing sacrifice And all the things that it applies that we get from that sacrifice, eternal life, reconciliation with God, sonship with the Father, justification, peace, the Holy Spirit, all those things that we get from this. And I think about this and all that it applies, and it grieves me that I am not more moved by this fact. I I had to read over the accounts of the crucifixion again last night because I was just... God, I just so easily pass over this truth. I just, just walk just walk right by it. Yeah, God, Christ laid down his life for me. And I don't think about it, what he did. I, I read through the account of the crucifixion last night and thinking about every step of the, the, from the time he was taken, every step, he could, have, he could have quit right there. He could have ended it right there. He could, have ended, he, he could have ended it right there. He didn't, he didn't, all the way till the end, until he said, it is finished. He didn't do it. Didn't end it. And we, we, we easily pass by this, this, the impact of this truth in our lives, what Christ's doing and laying down his life for us. And it's like, I think, some, we sit here and we hear that and we say, yeah, it's nice. <clears throat> what do we eat? What's on TV tonight? Who's playing the game? But like I stated in the beginning of this message, preaching is supposed to elicit a response. And that's what I'd like to end this message with is what is our response to this sacrifice of Christ who didn't let any man take his life. He didn't let the Jews take it. He didn't let the Roman soldiers take it. He maintained his life until our sin was paid for. And we need to have a proper response to that. So if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The historical... Facts are that the Jews tried to kill him, the Romans tried to kill him. Our sin was what deserved death, but it wasn't until Jesus Christ paid for it all that he allowed himself to die. The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus Christ, the doctrinal truth is that Jesus Christ laid down his life at the exact right point when it was necessary for sin to be paid for. He laid it down, nobody took it from him. The practical application is this question to us, what is our response to that? What is our response to that? Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at two verses. We're going re- to read uh, the whole section here, but I want to see two verses to start with this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ, we just talked about that, the fact that he laid down his life, the love of Christ constraineth us. To constrain is to compel or to urge somebody to do something. The love of Christ, Paul said, constrains us, but does it. What what is the love of Christ? Look at verse 21. This This is love of Christ encapsulated right here. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. We talked about all the sin was placed on Christ and the punishment the wrath of God went on Christ for you and for me and for everybody that's going to reject him. Jesus Christ suffered all that, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange made there where Jesus Christ took all the sin that we have committed and got punished for it. And God took Jesus Christ's righteousness, that righteous life he lived for 33 and a half years, and said, Here you go. You believe on Jesus Christ, you can have that righteousness, and I'll take all the sin, just give it to Christ. That's the love of God. That's the love of Christ. And that love of Christ should constrain us to do something. should compel us and urge us to do something. And what are those things? All right, let's look at this. Three things, and we'll be done. Three things that the sacrifice of Christ should compel us to do. Let's kind of pick apart this passage here now. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, or here, we've made this conclusion, we've made this decision, uh, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now, what's that statement mean? It says that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Well, it means uh, Christ died for every single person because they needed it. And that means that everybody must have been dead in trespasses and sins. Nobody is excluded from this. Nobody's uh, excluded because they're religious, or nobody's excluded because they've done a, lived a good life, or nobody's excluded because they went to church. Um, all were dead. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And ye who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the natural state of every man when they come into the world. Dead in trespasses and sins spiritually dead, and they need to be made alive again. So Paul says here, we thus judge. This is our determination that Christ, if, if he died for all, that means everybody was dead. Everybody was dead in trespasses and sins. John chapter 11, verse 25 says this now. Jesus Christ said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So Jesus is saying there's some people that are dead that need to be made alive. And they're made alive by believing in me. Um, Look at this in the same passage we're looking at. um, In verse 15 continues, it says, And that he died for all, that they which live. Okay, so we had everybody's dead, according to verse 14, all were dead. But now there's some people that live. That means there's been some people that have passed from death to life. They which live. John five twenty four says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So what happened to these people that are now living, that were dead? They got saved. They were born again by the Spirit of God. And this is the first response that everybody needs to make to the sacrifice of Christ. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved. My question to you for, I don't know everybody in here. I know some of you by face. I know some of you a little better than others, but I don't know your hearts. My question to you is, have you been saved? Have you passed from death unto life? When I ask you that question, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? If the first thing that comes to your mind is, I've been in this church my whole life. That's not the right answer. If the first thing that comes to your mind is, I've always believed in God. If the first thing that comes to your mind is, I'm better than the next person. If the first thing that comes to your mind is, I'm this or I'm that. If the first thing that doesn't come to your mind is, yes, I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for my sins, was buried and rose again. If that's not the first thing that comes into your mind, I'm going to be very bold and say, you are not saved, Salvation is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not involved in how often you come to church. It's not involved in how good of a person you are. It's not involved in whether you sing up here on the platform or play the piano or even preach in a pulpit. It is determined by what you did with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And our first response to this sacrifice and the fact that Christ laid down his life for us is that you need to get saved. And if you haven't done that tonight, Tonight's a good night to do that. And I wouldn't put it off. And I, I understand, I was just talking to my parents. You know, I, I gave my testimony yesterday morning at the men's prayer. And that was a hard thing for me. I talked about how I, um, you know, I had made some sort of profession when I was very young, but I didn't remember it. And um, I struggled with that in my teens. And because I didn't want, everybody thought I was saved. Look, I understand. But I wouldn't go to hell for anybody. I wouldn't go to hell because I was embarrassed to say, oh, you know what, I've been playing a game. I wouldn't go to hell because I was like, oh, everybody thinks that I'm this, or that. If you know you need to be saved tonight, get it taken care of, okay? Get it taken care of. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. He died to save you from your sins and he's not gonna turn you away because you maybe been playing a game or you just didn't understand something and now you realize that you never truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it tonight. Do it tonight. Get saved. Um, Paul says here that if one died for all, then we're all, we're all dead. This was necessary for everybody. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was necessary for everybody. And if you're not saved, it was necessary for you. <clears throat> if God thought it necessary to have Christ endure all that he endured for us, how can you think you're just going to pass this thing on by? Um, Hebrews chapter 2 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We're not. It's a rhetorical question. We are not going to escape if we see this salvation which has been laid before us tonight now through the Scripture and we say, uh, eh, I'm not going to do that tonight. Whatever reason, I don't care what your reason is, whatever excuse you have, it's not good enough to go to hell. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That requires a willingness on your part to submit to the truth of the gospel, just like it was a willing, just like Christ willingly laid down his life to save you it requires your willing choice to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you've done that tonight. And I, I, I trust that most people have here tonight. But if you haven't, get someone with a Bible and have them show you why you need to be saved and what, the, what, what, uh, what you need to do. But it's as simple as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a sinner. That sin's going to send you to hell. And Jesus Christ died to pay for that sin. Believe on him, plus nothing, minus nothing. It's him and him alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Paul told you. Philippian jailer. That's it. It's as easy as that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So, first response to that sacrifice of Christ should be you need to get saved. You need to get saved. What's the second response we should have? <clears throat> Look again at this passage in verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5 15. It says this, and that he died for all, that they which live, so these are the folks that have been born again and now they've been passed from death unto life, that they which live, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The purpose of Christ giving us a new life was not, not so that we could just go forward and keep doing the same old things we were doing, but that's so we could live for him. Living for ourselves is what our problem was before we were saved. That's what, that's what the problem was. Our, we naturally bend towards sin. We're born into iniquity, we're born into a sinful nature, and by the time we are able to understand the difference between right and wrong, that sin condemns us and kills us, Paul said. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Because just living for myself, because I just do the things that this flesh wants to do. But Paul says here that they which live, those that pass from death into life by salvation, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again. You see the gospel in that? Him which died for them and rose again. The gospel just encapsulated in that little phrase there. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. Um, So this is the logical, another logical and reasonable response we should have towards the sacrifice of Christ. Think about it. He says, they which live. We've passed from death unto life. We could be dead and in hell. And there's not enough preaching about that now. Because hell is a very real place. It's not a joke. It's not something to use as an oath or a curse word. It's a very real place that sinners go to who reject Jesus Christ. And we could be there if we hadn't received Christ. So our, our, our response to this is going to be we're just going to keep living for ourselves, living, doing the things we want to do, doing the things that please us. No, Paul says, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Look down at verse, uh, well, verse 17. Very famous verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. There's no question about that. If you're in Christ because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Uh, We don't have time to really break it down. For the sake of time, we can't do this. But verse 16 tells us this is a, it's not a fleshly transaction. This is a spiritual transaction. So, that new creature that's made inside of you, that new man, is not something that's on the outside, it's something that's on the inside. It's something that God did instantaneously when we were saved. As soon as the moment you called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, He saved you and He did a, a thousand things for you, but one of the things He did was made you a new creature inside. The problem is, is that how much of that is working towards the out? How much of it is working out of us? You know, we're all content to be like, Christ saved me, and uh, thank God I'm going to heaven, and I'm just going to keep doing the same things I was doing before. No, if we have taken advantage of his sacrifice, what kind of despite do we do to Him when our lives don't represent the new creature that He put in us? Look at this in verse 20. He says this: "Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Among other things, it's one who represents the power and dignity of his sovereign. And because Christ laid down his life for us and saved us, we are supposed to be representing his power and his dignity. But how often does our life not represent that? You know, Paul goes through this whole chapter that we're going to go through in chapter 5, and then into chapter 6. And it goes through some marvelous things. And in chapter 7, he says this. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have all this that Christ has given us, all these promises he's given us, things he's already given us, things we have to look forward to that he's given us. And Paul says, let's cleanse ourselves then. Let's get cleaned up, and let's be correctly represent our Savior, our Sovereign. And that's the second response we should have towards the sacrifice of Christ. What He did for us willingly is that we need to get cleaned up and represent Him correctly. We need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of our flesh and our spirit and perfect holiness. First Peter says, Reiterates a command from the Old Testament be holy, for I am holy. Nobody wants to hear preaching about holiness because I want to do what I want to do. We're not spending enough time meditating on what God did for us. But I'll look at the cross and what He did, which is what I tried to do in the first part of this message. A look at that cross and what Christ did for us willingly should constrain us to be like, Lord, you deserve for me to live for you, not for myself. You deserve that I don't continue wallowing in these things that make me filthy and dirty, but that I live a holy and clean life for you. Now, I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to sit here and list a bunch of things. If there's something dirty in your life and you're a saved child of God, God's already put his finger on that thing. I guarantee you. And I don't have to tell you what it is. The Holy Spirit's telling you what it is. But God wants you to give it up and clean up. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We got the grace of God. It was by grace God gave us this sacrifice. Freely. He's never going to take it away. So let's just continue in sin. Paul says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We, I include myself in this, we easily let sin and uncleanness slip in into our lives. But God calls us to be holy. And this I put on myself as well, but I fear that the things of the world just allure me and excite me way more than what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me. And folks, the only way to get back to where we ought to be, with our mind thinking the things we ought to think, is to get back in this book and look at what Christ did for us. And start meditating. We talked about in our you know the Sunday school lesson. One of the one of the actions we're supposed to take with the Bible is to meditate on it. Go ahead, read the crucifixion account again tonight. What Christ did and all that he suffered so that you could be saved from. Eternal damnation in hell. And then think about what, is, what, is he, what does he deserve because of this? How can I live in sin any longer? Are we going to sin again? Yes, yes, I get it. We're going to, okay? We're flesh, and until this flesh is redeemed, we're going to have issues with it all our whole life. But let's, not, let's just continue in that willingly. Pastor Schott mentioned this morning about presumptuous sins. Yeah, I know we probably sin, there's some things we sin out of ignorance, but he's right. Most of our sins are done presumptuously. We know exactly what we're doing. We just do it because we want to. But let's take a look at the cross. Let's take a look at what Jesus Christ did for us and let it constrain us to live holier, purer lives. And let's, let's get rid of some of the stuff that just pollutes us, um, whatever it is. Stop talking like the world. Stop being entertained by the world's things. Stop living like the world, whatever it is. That's the second response we should have to it. If you're not saved... Looking at this sacrifice of Christ who did it for you willingly, you should get saved. If you are saved and you've done that, thank God. He's made you a new creature. Let's let that new creature come out, not just hide it inside. A little secret service Christian. But let's let it come out. What's the third thing? Third thing. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 again. <clears throat> Verse 18. The Bible says, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, thank God, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. What's Paul saying here? Look back at verse 18. Look what he says in the end of the verse he, um, God hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to the preacher the ministry of reconciliation, and hath given to the evangelists the ministry of reconciliation. He's given to the missionaries and the Sunday school teachers the ministry of reconciliation. What does it say? It's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you have been given a ministry. And it's a ministry to reconcile sinners back to God through Jesus Christ. He's committed this to us. Look what he says in verse 19, and the end of it He hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Well, what's that word? 1 Peter 1.25 says this, But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. What's the gospel? How that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day. That's the word that's committed unto you and me, every one of us in here that's saved. God not only expects us to clean up our life and represent him correctly, but as we do that, we are supposed to go out and be an ambassador to reconcile others to Christ. What does he say in verse 20? As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Now we use that word pray um, kind of loosely sometimes. What does the word pray mean? It means to ask with earnestness and zeal. And so Paul says, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We are supposed to be zealously and earnestly pleading with others to be reconciled to God. You realize, I was brought up again this morning, too. I thought I said this, this message just dovetailed with tonight's. Um, we brought up again this morning about, about um, I just lost what I was thinking there. Um, <clears throat> okay, Lord, let's let that one go. But um, <clears throat> we, should, we should be uh, earnestly and zealously pleading with others to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are praying that you be reconciled to God. Um, that is what we were. We were oh, That's what it was. We, we were enemies of God. you you weren't okay with God before you got saved. Uh, Romans chapter five, later on in the passage says, for if when we were enemies, okay, you weren't okay and God just kind of brought you in because you were a good guy. You were an enemy of God by wicked works and so was I. And he reconciled you back to God. God and man were at odds. And Jesus Christ, the Daysman, brought his hand upon God, upon man, and brought them back together through the death of his cross and reconciled us back to God. If we stayed with that enmity between us and God, we would be dead and in hell. But God, Jesus Christ, reconciled us to God, and now we have a ministry to reconcile others to God. What, it's only good for you, and it's not good for anybody else? You're happy that you're saved, and you're not going to hell, and you're going to heaven, but you don't want to let anybody else know? This is a ministry that's been committed to us, and our proper response to what Christ did for us, laying down his life at the exact right time, enduring all the shame, enduring all the pain, and all the anguish and the sin of all mankind, waiting until the time when the work was finished and laid down his life, did it willingly. Now he's given you eternal life. You've received it. But our ministry is to try to reconcile others. When was the last time we earnestly and zealously pleaded with others for them to be reconciled to God, to tell them about the gospel or the grace of God. Our only reason for being left on this earth by God is to represent him correctly and to lead others to him. There's no other reason why we're still here. God left us here so that when he saved us, okay, now it's your turn to tell somebody else about what he did for you and what he, how he can save them. Our final, our final response to the, one of the third final response to this sacrifice of Christ should be, get busy telling other people the gospel. How much time we got left here? I don't know how much time I got left. I might have a year left. I might have a week left. I might have 20 years left. I don't know. The Lord might come back tonight. And then it's done. And then we got to answer for, I mean, we're saved and everything, that's great. But we got to answer for what we did for him. I don't know how much time I got left, and as best as I can, I need to be determining that I'm telling others and pleading with them to be reconciled to God uh, through the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to be prepared. You know, this is not something that happens by accident. We need to be prepared to, to tell others this, this gospel message. Prepared in our, in our we talked about our, our lives should represent Christ Correctly. So that's that's number one. Our 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 lives should correctly reflect what we're trying to tell them about Jesus Christ. Yes. And prepared in our minds and our hearts spiritually, not just, you know, not thinking about it. And then as soon as we get into an opportunity to tell someone about the Lord, we aren't ready, we aren't thinking about it, our minds are on something else. Um, we need to be spiritually clean. We need to be mentally prepared. We need to be logistically prepared. Do you carry tracks on you? Do you have do you have something to give to somebody if you if you have an opportunity to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ? Have something ready. Paul says we're supposed to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us a hope, a reason of the hope that lies in us. Ready, ready, we should be ready. Um, You know what? And find some way to spread the gospel, not only in your sphere of influence. We all have family that we're around that are lost. Be a testimony to them. Tell them about the gospel when you get a chance. Many of us have jobs that we're at, have co-workers that are around, and be a testimony to them and tell them about the gospel. But those places, we're around all the time, and we should maintain a consistent testimony there. But pretty much, you've given them the gospel, now what? Find some other place to go out and give the gospel to. Go out to a shopping plaza and hand out some tracts. Go out to the street and preach. Go out and find somebody to minister to that you can tell the gospel to. That's not inside your sphere of influence. There's people dying and going to hell today that need to hear the gospel. And it's been committed to us to do so. And it's our reasonable service. It's just reasonable that when Christ laid down his life for us and all that he went through, that our response should be, sure, Christ, I'll work. I'll work for you. I'll do this for you. You've given me a ministry of reconciliation. I'll tell somebody else about the gospel. I'll do it. I'll do it. A look at the cross and what it did for us should compel us to tell others about him, not hide it just to ourselves. In conclusion, um, Christ, it was grace and love that he willingly laid down his life, enduring pain and shame and anguish to rescue us from an eternal damnation. And our proper response, three proper responses, if you're not saved, get saved. Don't put it off. Your eternal soul depends upon that. Number two, if you've been saved, live like it. Clean up, put away the filth of the flesh and spirit, perfect holiness. And number three, speak up for him. Give the gospel out. This is, these are the basic things of Christianity, folks. And and yet, they're, they're the things that we probably struggle with the most. You know, brother, brother Tim Butler said yesterday when he was talking in his lesson about, you know, he's been saved about 10, 12 years. And uh, just gotten serious in the last two years about, you know, studying and stuff like that. and He feels like a, like a knucklehead. Well, brother, I've been saved for 30 years almost, and I'm a bigger knucklehead than you if I still can't, still working at these things, trying to, to get them right. So we, we, all, we all need to, to, to examine ourselves um, and think about what, what has been our response to the cross of Christ. What has been our response to the love at the cross there? Are we saved? Are we living clean lives? And are we telling other people about the gospel? Um, Brother Eric, if you can come, we'll close in in an invitation song. I'd like to sing... uh...